I'm ready. Let's do it. Welcome, one and all, to episode 242 of the Mars Attacks podcast. I'm your host, Victor. And during this episode, we have a really cool interview with Mr. Ryan J. Downey. If you don't know who Ryan is, he's worked at MTV. He's worked at The Hollywood Reporter. He's worked for Marvel. He's interviewed all types of entertainers over the years, not just talking about music. But he's also interviewed a lot of big movie and television stars. He's co-written books with famous people. He's managed bands. He's part of NotFest, so on and so forth. There's a lot of different things that we get into that he's involved in. And I'm very happy and gracious that he was able to join me and tell his story. And we were able to go back and forth with a bunch of different things throughout, you know, with the people in the chat, with questions that kind of came up as the interview moved on. It was, it was really great to speak to him. And you'll notice that from our interview from this episode. Uh, I also am very thankful and gracious that all of you are here checking this podcast episode out. For those of you that are new to the show, you can skip ahead to the 10 minute mark for the interview. Uh, in the meantime, I do want to remind people that I do the Signals from Mars live stream every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific, 11 p.m. in the UK. And we have Carl Alvarez coming up tonight. He's been involved with music throughout the years, kind of behind the scenes. He was involved in the Inside Metal documentary series as well. Uh, he's on tonight. We have uh, Drew Fortier of The Lucid. He's been on the show a few times over the last year, actually. He will be back on the 22nd of October live. And then we will have Return to Earth with Ron Scalzo and Chris Penny joining me. At least these are all scheduled uh, to take place. Of course, this may change if people's schedules change. So I'm just telling you what I have scheduled at the moment. You can join us live chat with some of the diehards that are there usually live every Friday. And you could, if not, you can join Patreon as well, where I let my patrons ask people questions before anyone else. They get to cut ahead of the line. It's $2 a month for Patreon. And I do want to send a quick shout out to everyone that's in the, the Patreon right now. We're down to 11 patrons. Hopefully we can get Rob Rowe back shortly. But in the meantime, we have Johan in Sweden. We have Metal Dan. We have Jerry from Long Island. Jose in Connecticut. We have Chris Vaglio from the Chris and Amanda show. We have the metal dentist, Gabriel Ruiz. We have Mark Striegel from Talking Metal. Brad Dahl, Dr. Poison from Yarg Metal. We have Mike Jones. No, not the Mike Jones from Boston that John Bush and Joey Vera know. It's our Mike Jones, damn it. We have Jeremy Weltman, whose patron's pick will be coming up shortly. And we have the OG, 
the Hokenator, Twisted Steve Hoker. We have him as well. So I want to thank everyone from my Patreon group that does, you know, get involved every Friday. The most of these guys are there every Friday when they can. And if not, they're sharing, they're letting other people know about the episodes uh, as they come out as well. So it is always cool to be involved with them or get them involved. We have the bi-monthly band discussion, which we're still debating on who that will be in November. So sign up for Patreon and you can get involved yourself. Also a ton of video content, an exclusive podcast that is only available there, the Victor M. Ruiz podcast, and a bunch more. Here's Jeremy Welcome with Patreon's Club. Hi everyone, another patron's pick this week and a patron's pick with a difference. We'll come to that in just a minute. What can it be? Well, we'll just have to wait and see. 16 albums were put up on um, MasterTaxRadio.com by Victor Ruiz last week. Three EPs, two reissues, one live album and one compilation. The, um, the two reissues that he put up were quite interesting. You've got Technical Ecstasy, the Black Sabbath album. You've also got Shout at the Devil by Motley Crue, which is one of, one of my favorite ones by them. I think uh, it may also be one of Victor's favorites as well. Certainly the early stuff by Motley Crue is well worth dipping into. And if you've never heard or never collected Motley Crue, because you might be a little bit too young, uh, please go back and listen to the first three, four albums. Uh, you, you'll hear some great stuff on there. So looking through uh, some of the other albums that came out this week, there were quite a few interesting ones. There is an album out by Yes, the 70s band, which doesn't have have, uh, obviously all of its original members. That was an interesting bit of prog. I can't say I'm fully, uh, fully into it, but it's there if you like that sort of thing. There were four other albums I'd like to mention. One by Unforged, which was Eye for Eye. I like that. I also liked Wage War with uh, uh, an album called Manic. There is the new Asking Alexandria album. Now, that's called See What's on the Inside. That's really uh, exciting. Quite a few other patrons on Victor's site this week. Um, There's quite a few patrons who really uh, like that band and have liked them for some time. I really also enjoy that, that, that album particularly. There's some good tracks on there. And I also liked the album by Kryptos called Force of Danger. That to me had a little bit of an old school feel and um, reminded me of sort of old old metal, old rock. And I, I, I enjoyed that one too. So we get to the point where I normally tell you what the patron's pick is this week. But for this week, and only this week, I'm not going to tell you. And you're probably shouting, why not? And the reason is... I'm going to reveal it only to the patrons. But this week only, I'm going to release it inside Victor's site. And so if you want to find out what the patrons pick is this week, and believe me, it's a really, really good album. It's a punky album. There are some other features about the album too, which I'm about to reveal to the other patrons. And I'm only going to reveal it to them. To join Victor's site, he's on... Uh, Patreon, you only have to pay $2 a, a month. You can pay more than that. Some of us do. 
and you help support Victor, who really spends a lot of time putting stuff together. His uh, podcast that you're listening to now is only part of it. Um, He puts up lots of videos every day of different types of music, and we discuss them inside the group. He also puts up his album of the week. He interviews lots of great people in the music business, small and large, and he really needs his really needs your support as much as um, we're giving him at the moment. So, if you want to listen to Patrons Pick for this week, or find out what Patrons Pick is, come and join us. See you soon. In what can only be deemed as a unexpected twist, Jeremy has swerved us all. <laughs> I want to thank Jeremy, man. That was beyond awesome. I did not put him up to that at all. Uh, I thank Jeremy for doing that and saying all those kind words. Uh, I do appreciate everyone's support. If you can get on Patreon, that's great. If you can like, if you can share, tell people that I've interviewed, hey, enjoyed the interview that you did on Mars Attacks or Signals from Mars. Let them know because it'll also mean that they'll want to come back and it'll mean that I can get other guests on here as well. In any event, check out this long interview with Ryan. It is very worthwhile listening to. He is great. I enjoyed it greatly. And I hope you enjoy the interview as well. Enjoy. Welcome, everyone, to the October 1st edition of the Signals from Mars live stream brought to you by the Mars Attacks podcast and VMRIT web design Joining me today is another fellow who likes to use his middle initial in his name, like myself, uh, Mr. Ryan J. Downey. How are you, sir? How's it going, man? Thanks for having me on. Uh, happy October 1st to you. Awesome. <laughs> happy it's October. The it's the favorite month for uh, most people we know. <laughs> well, it's it's my favorite month. Uh, it's also the month in which I was born, so that's an extra plus there. Ah, where, 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 whereabouts in October? The 20th. Oh, nice. I'm November 7th. Okay. I was, uh, I was, I was actually my due date that they gave my mom was Halloween. And then I was exactly one week late. <laughs> so, but still, still Sam Hain season. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. That's <laughs> uh, a, a, a common argument over here on my side of the world. I mean, I'm in Spain. Um, and the whole thing with um, Halloween actually becoming Americanized over here. And a lot of people resisting it and saying it no it's not actually halloween it's sam hain it's this yeah Halloween. Yeah. yeah 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 so yeah um, well i like I, i'm uh irish catholic by lineage uh you know a uh, third generation or something but uh so i figure i have some kind of claim to Halloween <laughs> with the, with the right. celtic part of my heritage but uh, you know halloween's for everyone yeah absolutely well, you have people nitpick and complain about anything, so. <laughs> For sure. I personally use my middle initial because after 
think it was the last. That was, that was literally my first question for you, by the way. So go on. Okay, because <laughs> I've had I've had people tell me, "Hey, do you use your middle initial because of Inve J Malmstein?" I'm like, uh, "No." I said I use my middle initial because the last time I entered the states, I was actually stopped by uh, uh, by uh, I guess it was Homeland Security. They were looking for another Victor Ruiz. Whoa. And and ever since I was, it actually wasn't the last time. I think it was because I moved over here. It's going to be 17 years in December. But, you know, I came to the realization. I'm like, yeah, I've got a name that probably three other three million other people share in the world. So anything yeah. I can do to differentiate, I, I got to throw that initial. I support in. it. I support it. And you know what? My story of my middle initial usage is remarkably similar in the in the sense that I mean, I I mean, look, it's a little pretentious when you see it. Uh, but the origin for mine is my first professional uh n- newspaper job. I was the assistant music editor for a weekly paper in Indianapolis, and this was in the late 90s. And one day I'm sitting at my desk and I get a promo package from uh gosh which label was it i I think it was island it was one of the major labels and it was an imprint on the major it was elton john's imprint and it was a new alternative rock artist that he had signed and was mentoring Mm -hmm. and his name was ryan downey it was a d-o-w-n-e but it was pronounced downey and i thought the minute i saw that like i'm screwed like i'm i'm gonna be like michael bolton in office space and at the time, uh, you would hear a lot. There were Mark L. Wahlberg and Howard K. Stern were two people that were like in the news a lot around that time. Right. I was like, I'm going to I better start being Ryan J. Downey just in case. And uh, luckily for me, unluckily for him, uh, his career didn't take off. But I have looked him up since. And uh, it looks like he had a pretty successful career as a record producer after the, the singing oh, wow. thing didn't work. So. But yeah, so that was the origin for me. And now there's now there's another singer songwriter. I think he's Australian, named Ryan Downey. But at this point, I'm like a couple decades ahead of him. So right. So you, you be, were it could be his problem this time. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, I'm already prepared. Right. <laughs> you you were uh, up at night, uh, sleepless nights, thinking I'm gonna have some some jerk ask me tomorrow. Hey, what's your favorite Ryan Downey song? Similar to the Michael Bolton Office Space uh, reference you made. Exactly. So. <laughs> celebrate his whole catalog. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I actually, it's funny. I went back and I listened to an interview you did with a good friend of my show with Bob now Bandian. Uh, uh, yeah. And it was really cool because I mean, I, I always say this, Bob is someone that I shouldn't know because of, to me, he's like royalty. He was there, you know, with so many bands in the embryonic stage, you know, mm-hmm. you about knowing Lars, he explained about, you know, going to shows early on with people. I've talked to him over the years behind the scenes about different things with different interviews and have him say, that fucker didn't tell you the whole story. I drove him to that show or I, you know, it was, it's funny. So Bob, yeah, he's, like, he's like the Forrest Gump of uh, early thrash. This <laughs> <laughs> yeah. was like around for all these crucial moments in this like, right. background character. Which, which is funny because um, I don't know if he popped into the, uh, into the chat yet, but uh, 
Bob Dahl, who is actually a poison control doctor out in Utah, who I have on the show often. And he actually went to school with Tommy Lee. And we did this whole, you know, every two months I do an episode where I have all my patrons on and they select a band to talk about. And the last, last month we talked about Judas Priest. And it was funny because he starts to tell a story. And, you know, I'm thinking that he's done. And he's saying about that he saw a priest at the whiskey, like back in like 77 and this and that. And you think he's done. And then all of a sudden, well, yeah, but then I saw them on the rock and roller tour in this club. And then I saw them there. And then, you know, and, that, and then there's a, a bunch of different um, like shows. He was at that first Metallica Saxon show. He was wow. there are like all these different stories where because he grew up in L.A., he's able to tell like a lot of similar stories where you think he's done. But he's like, no, wait, let me top that one with, you know, I got to see so and so in a broom closet. You know, did so you say Brad doll or Bob, Bob doll, Brad doll, Brad doll. OK, so we're talking about Bob. No, because I was like, Bob doll, poison control, Bob, Bobby doll of poison. Right. Oh, <laughs> different story. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah, he's there. Yarg yeah, I think he's in here, and, and of course our homie Toomey is in here. What up? Yeah, yeah hey, uh, Josh, first of all, I have to say thanks for se for setting this up, helping set yeah. this up. Uh, also, um, I, hope you, I hope you don't get mad at me for the uh, Mighty Mighty Boston's reference I made on your Facebook. He was wearing a hat that was similar to... Um, to what the guy that used to dance around on stage for the Mighty Mighty Boston oh. used to wear. So, so let's see. The guy in a veil was Bobo. I don't know what the guy in Boston's name was, but yeah, it, there. Somebody needs to do a listicle of all the bands that have like someone in the band that just dances around, but they're dance. like a full band member. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they don't play anything or sing. Right. So there you go. Um, so anyway, listening to that interview with Bob, you know, got the wheels turning. And obviously you, you also mentioned just now that you had been working uh, in Indianapolis in a newspaper, so on and so forth. Um, I always like to hear people discuss what kind of got them on their journey because, you know, I talked to, again, we just mentioned one of the guys in the chat, Brad, who's out in LA. I have Jeremy who's in the chat as well, who's in Manchester, England. Uh, a few weeks ago, I interviewed uh, from Australia. Shout, so shout, out, shout out Carl Pilkington. Shout out Morrissey. Shout out Oasis. All right, go ahead. Those are all those are all my favorite manks in order. Um so it's always cool to hear everyone discuss, you know, kind of what turned them on because in every area it's different. You know. Um, so for you, what was kind of the catalyst to want to pursue anything remotely related with music? Um yeah, well, uh, with music, early on, I, I, you know, my my best friend Dave Peters has a quote that I steal all the time, but with attribution as often as I can get it in, uh, which is never trust anyone in the music business that didn't try to start a band first. <laughs> and I have found that to be a, a, a truism pretty consistently, with with some exceptions. There have been exceptions, but uh, it seems like everyone you come across that you know sort of came to it from that direction at some point regardless of how far or not far whatever distance they went um but for me yeah music was was there really 
early. Uh, my parents split up when I was about four years old and I was raised by my mom for most of my childhood. And she was really into uh, Johnny Cash, Conway Twitty, Crystal Gale, Kenny Rogers, Dolly Parton, Linda Ronstadt, uh, a lot of a lot of country music, but more sort of what I guess you would call classic country mm-hmm. these days, because, you know, certainly not really resembling kind of the the more popular country right now. So I was, you know, really, I didn't realize it at the time because I didn't like any of that music at the time, but I was really kind of blessed to have such a rich uh, tapestry of that sort of music around the house. And she also liked some stuff that was contemporary at the time, like the police and uh, my old, I have an older brother. He was responsible for getting me into Adam and the Ants, which was probably the first real musical love that I had. And we're talking like, I mean, this is like second grade, right? Second, third grade, very, very little. Uh, I was totally fascinated by the image, the music, the videos. Um, And then he, he got our mom into Adam Ant, which was cool. And then the first thing that was really mine that kind of followed from Adam and the Ants was Generation X and uh, Billy Idol, who was just first breaking as a solo artist back then. And uh, me going, me getting all the Billy Idol records, buying all the magazines he was in, kind of going backwards. And that led me into punk. And so right around the time I was in like fifth and sixth grade, I was listening to the Sex Pistols and Black Flag and, and learning about, you know, everything from the Exploited to Dead Boys to UK Subs to, to whatever. And granted, this is the mid 80s in Indiana. So none of these were popular pursuits. Uh, you know, this was definitely like weird stuff that weird kids were into, you know, that read comic books and road skateboards and did stuff that was later celebrated, but at the time was uh, pretty marginalized. Right. So I always had this interest in kind of the, the total package because I, I obviously loved the music first and foremost, but I also loved album artwork I liked reading interviews. I was like obsessively reading rock magazines, literally in elementary school and in middle school. And then, you know, really never stopped. And, uh, you know, in in middle school, I was I had subscriptions to like Star Hits magazine and like, you know, anybody that wrote about AHA or Susie and the Banshees or, you know, another band that my older brother turned me on to was Hanoi Rocks. Okay, Uh, right around the time Guns N' Roses broke through i remember my brother showing me a picture of andy mccoy and michael monroe from hanoi rocks and going yeah that's izzy straddling and axel rose it was (laughs) like they did they looked exactly the same right uh so i so i always had that sort of interest and curiosity in unpacking things and reverse engineering them and that continued through uh you know it's a, a whole sort of separate story but where metal enters into the picture and then from metal hardcore and from hardcore hip-hop and then you know circling all the way back around to Britpop, and then you know for most of my adult life i think it's safe to say that doom has been my favorite subgenre of metal okay but yeah i had this burning desire to participate so ninth grade in high school my friend matt and i started a zine and we did interviews with like a couple of local bands. And then I did interviews by the mail via the maximum rock and roll classified section. We found other people in our, in our town kind of spread out 
via that fanzine and started going to local shows and things like that. And then it was like immediate, like, because I getting into the, the punk and hardcore scene, especially the attitude was always like, you should, you're a participant. You're not just someone who's going to shows. So I was doing the zine. My friends and I were putting on shows at VFW halls and bringing bands to town. Uh, You know, one of the first shows we did, and this one, I'm like 14, 15 years old was a band called even score. The singer was this guy, Tony Brummel, who had just started a label called victory records that at the time was literally three, seven inches and a cardboard box. And one of the other bands we had on that show was a band, another band from Chicago called Trenchmouth. And their drummer was a guy called Fred Armisen, who many, many years later would uh, end up on Saturday Night Live. Uh, So there were a lot of like, you know, interesting sort of collisions like that. But, and then, yeah. And then the top priority was trying to do a band and I didn't really seem to have the patience or the focus to get good at guitar. I was kind of a rudimentary bass player. Uh, My dad, who I was now living with, uh, wouldn't let me get drums because they're too big and noisy and a lot to lug around. So that just sort of by process of elimination makes you a singer. So I had uh, some friends in my my school who were, you know, a bass player, a guitar player, a drummer. Uh, they were doing cover songs. They invited me over to be their singer. And I came over and we did Creeping Death, For Whom the Bell Tolls, um, Am I Evil, uh, Death Angel, I'm Bored. And they had a few like originals that uh, we worked on. And yeah, so it was always about trying to do bands and even putting on shows was about trying to put on shows that our band could play and, and doing zines was about trying to like do a zine that my band could be interviewed in. So the first issue of my first zine had an interview with one of my early bands and it was literally like a written interview where I'm just interviewing myself. (laughs) And, uh, you know, from there it was, you know, it was that band and that band never played any shows. And then there was a hardcore band, which we didn't know at the time, but I found out later we were the first straight edge hardcore band in Indianapolis. There had been straight edge kids, but there had never been a straight edge band. And that band managed to play one show before uh, switching over to another band that, you know, by the time I was done with high school, we had put out a demo and a seven inch, which at the time putting out a seven inch on like a real label was, you know, that's kind of as far as you ever imagined you could take it anyway. Like that was kind of like the pinnacle. And when the band thing uh, sort of went on the back burner, I guess, after high school, um, yeah, to make a very long story short, you know, I, I really pivoted that all of those interests and all of, I guess, that skill set and, and, and whatnot into, and especially obsessively reading about music mm-hmm. into a career in journalism. And that really started, I never stopped doing fanzines. So I was doing fanzines and uh, played in a couple of bands, but nothing super serious. And in Indy, there was a weekly paper at the time. I think it's still around. And every year they would do a local music issue. And every year it would have like some bar band that plays for 50 people and does mostly covers on the cover of the music issue. And it would be like Indianapolis music scene. And I remember getting it and all my friends going like, you know, at the time we had uh, a hardcore band from there called Split Lip who was drawing, you know, seven, 800 kids at headlining shows locally. You know, we had this vibrant scene 
in the metal in the metal scene and in the uh, punk and hardcore scene, especially that was I, I, not even that it was ignored. I think it was just that the local press wasn't aware of it. And so every year people would get that issue of the weekly paper and complain about it and how they didn't know what they were doing and what a joke it was. And one day I was uh, waiting tables at a restaurant that was walking distance from where that paper's office was. And I thought, you know what, instead of being the person that just sits around and complains about how lame the this year's local music issue is, I'm going to go in there. I'm going to tell them. I'm going to tell them how lame it is. And so I just, I don't know that this is a story you could even really replicate these days because of the way things work. But I, you know, this was 96, 97. I just went in the lobby. I asked for the music editor by some miracle. For some reason, I still don't understand. He actually came out to talk to me. And uh, I was like, yeah, I just, I had some uh, issues with your local music guide cover story thing. And he's like, well, let's hear him. And he sat very patiently and listened to me rant and rave about everything that was wrong with it. And when I got to the end of this spiel, he very, very calmly says, uh, so if there's like one band that you think we're really missing the boat on, like if you could narrow it down to one who's like the most glaringly obvious omission that we never write about, who would it be? And I was like, oh, well, it'd be this band uh, Chamberlain. They used to be called Split Lip, but they, you know, they tour all over the country. They're on like a national record label. They have major labels looking at them. You guys have never written about them. You know, they're good friends of mine. And, and he said, well, how about you bring me 500 words on Chamberlain on Monday? <laughs> And I was like, and he's like, have you ever written anything before? And I was like, I do fanzines. And he's like, write 500 words about your buddies and and bring it in. And it was, I was dirt poor, first of all. Um, and, you know, waiting tables and playing in crappy little bands. And uh, I didn't own a computer. So I went to the all night computer lab at a college that I didn't even attend that happened to be walking distance from my house. I don't think I even had a car. And, uh, you know, I interviewed my buddies in the band and uh, took notes by hand um, and went to this all night computer lab at a university that I didn't go to pretending to be a student and going in at like midnight, wrote this 500 words, borrowed a floppy disk, uh, not the big black kind, but the like medium, right of the era borrowed a floppy disk and put the story on it and then yeah walked it in to uh nouveau news weekly on the following monday and uh that turned into freelancing for them and then that turned into a full-time job there as that guy's assistant wow. and once i had enough clips with my published byline from working there at the weekly i was then able to send those around I sent them to Metal Maniacs, a magazine called Chord that was around at Chord at, at the time, uh, Circus. I mean, I probably sent them to a lot more. Those are just the ones I ended up writing for. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I actually remember my first byline in Alternative Press was in 97. And I remember faxing the editor there at the time. Uh, from a, I was working full time at the paper and part time at a record store. So the paper didn't really pay much, right? And uh, at my record store job, faxing copies of my articles from the newspaper to the guy at Alternative Press to uh, you know, 
get an opportunity to write for them. So yeah, so that was really the the beginning of all of it. And then it it just so happened that same year, um, uh, kind of another long story, but the short version is I ended up in another band uh, called Burn It Down, which which was kind of at that point like doing bands was sort of in the rear view. You know, <laughs> I was set on like being an adult and uh you know the journalism thing was cool and but um through various circumstances i ended up in this band with uh originally the first lineup all, all three of the other guys were older than me by a couple of years and i already felt like at the time which is hilarious because i was like 21 22 i already felt like i was too old to be doing music um <laughs> playing music you know, and all my friends who had been in bands, hardcore bands and punk bands and metal bands when we were teenagers were already, they'd either moved on to indie rock or they had left, you know, quit playing music altogether. And it was kind of a joke with my original group of friends. I go, Downey's in a, he's like, you know, playing teenager with a, he's in a band, he's doing a metal band. But um, yeah, we ended up, uh, the band was around for about four years and we put out, a handful of EPs. Uh, one was on Trustkill Records. One was on Uprising, which was later the label that launched Fallout Boy. And uh, actually, the split we did on on Trustkill was with a band called Race Trader, who had two guys who are now in Fallout Boy. Uh, a little footnote there. And uh, yeah, we ended up doing one full length record, and we never made it out of the U.S., but we toured around the U.S. Um, we supported. We went on tour with Dillinger Escape Plan. Um, Candiria, we had shows with Hatebreed. This was now like late 90s into the early 2000s. The band actually broke up at the end of 2000, which was the year our full length came out. And uh, the last tour we did was with In Flames, Nevermore, and Shadows Fall. And it was the kind of band where, you know, our album got a four or five star five i think i think a 5k review in kerrang or four or 5k and a four out of five in ap which was not through my doing <laughs> and uh you know we, we we were in this uh kerrang article that was uh the, the new wave of american noise core and it was like Kaven, who we'd also toured with botch uh converge dillinger us so we were really kind of grouped in with a lot and we were playing with those bands all the time but the band our band was never big um, you know, locally we, we could do like four or five, four or 500 people headlining at our peak. And we got on a lot of cool festivals and stuff, uh, Hellfest and Syracuse, Milwaukee metal fest. But I would never say that we were like a big band in that scene, but what it allowed me to do is when the band split and I moved to, uh, California in 2001, the band had enough notoriety with it's uh, it, it's it's hard to explain but it was like people that loved our band ended up starting or joining other bands that became much much bigger than we did okay and that allowed me to uh pivot into artist management mm -hmm. um you know the first band that i started managing was a band called bleeding through and you know brandon the singer is wearing a burn it down t-shirt in the pictures of, on the first album right uh, so I, I knew he knew me as the singer from that band 
<laughs> and uh, you know, Demon Hunter, same thing. You know, I knew those guys from when they were in training for Utopia. We'd played shows with them. Uh, Throwdown, we had played shows with Throwdown, and it was sort of like the, the band was really great for me in that sense that enough people who were doing cool things knew me from that. Uh, not IUPUI to me, it was actually uh, Butler. Well, good guess though. Um, I did, I did actually take uh, two classes at IUPUI once. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so that, I mean, that's the extremely short version. I mean, that, you know, we leading me up, I guess, to 2001 and coming out here. Uh, but that, I guess that's the long way of answering your question about what made me interested in music. So it was, yeah, it was really falling in love with music at a very young age, getting into a lot of different kinds of music, always sort of looking to the margins at the time, because the vast majority of the stuff that I loved, you know, into adulthood wasn't popular. But the people it was popular with were like zealously devoted and dedicated to it. Right. And that's probably remained a truism, you know, into adulthood. Even even as bands I loved got really popular, they still have really dedicated diehard fans. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and it was about trying to do zines, trying to put on shows, trying to be in bands, trying to go on tour. And that eventually, you know, steered me towards journalism and then you know i've been a professional journalist i guess since 97 and somewhere around like 2003 i was managing part-time and doing journalism full-time and that kind of flipped for about 10 years where management became the full-time focus and journalism was kind of the thing i was moonlighting on right. and then that leads us all the way into the present where it's just an amalgamation of all all of those things um are all intertwined so yeah and someday Toomey and i are going to start a band we're gonna have our old guy metal band awesome. uh maybe with some other not fest twitch people because i know we've got at least at least one guitar player in there do we have any drummers to me are there any drummers in the not fest twitch world but uh yeah that's the story really cool i want to Say a quick hello to everyone in the chat we have m contributing we you mentioned uh josh Toomey. Brad from Yarg Metal, Jeremy in Manchester, who I mentioned before, Gabriel, the metal dentist, is in here. Who else? We have metal Paul Giles said hello. And that's about everyone so far. Anyone else want to say hello? Feel free to do so. Um, can you pinpoint an article that made you think when it came to journalism? You mentioned how you kind of – walk into the, the office there at that newspaper, but is there one specific article that maybe you sent to, to, to a magazine like an alternative press or like a circus? And that was kind of, you think the article that broke you? Um, not so much. I can't so much point to a, a single specific one, but more a series of, of a, a handful, I suppose. Okay. Um, you know, certainly crucial, getting my first byline writing about my friends in the band Chamberlain locally was a big deal. And then from there, uh, the first stuff that I was writing for AP was, um, you know, a lot of stuff about hardcore bands and the more sort of extreme kind of noise core thing that was happening that I was pretty dialed into. But honestly, um, 
Yeah, here's here's a good answer to your question. So around 1999, I was still living in Indy. And I pitched a story to Punk Planet. I don't know if you remember, but at the time, MTV, they did it a couple years in a row. They had a thing called the uh, Wanna Be a VJ contest right. mm-hmm. where people, yeah, regular people from all around the country could audition. And it was really more, it was less about them finding a VJ and more about the promotion of it because it was, this was pre American Idol. It was a very American Idol type thing because it went to like every major city and then you'd have thousands of people you know, queuing up for it. And there's ads for like Doritos and like, you know, there's like sponsors and, you know, it was like, it was more of a big event. Like that. So, uh, yep. I look like, I yeah, back now. we good. It looks like your connection keeps going up and down. Well, let's see if we could um, get Ryan back on here. In in the meantime, yeah, I, I saw that uh, Josh kind of threw the whole dancer thing back at us there <laughs> with his previous reference. So um, let's see if we can get Ryan to... Uh, Sometimes, as people that have joined the show know, sometimes the internet just bottoms out for no reason at all. Hopefully he can jump back on here in a second. Um, You guys uh, following me all right out there in the chat? Just let me know. Economics isn't so metal. (laughs) Well, you're dealing with money. At the currently, currencies, most of them are still all metallic. So... Yeah, he just dropped out. So let's see if we can get him to to rejoin here in a second. Um, I want to welcome everyone that isn't in here um, usually. Obviously, you're probably here because of Ryan. So I do thank you guys for joining us. I do this show every Fridays at the same time, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific, 11 p.m. in the UK. And for those of you like myself who are in continental Europe, it's midnight. Friday going into Saturday. So um, every week we either have a, a really cool interview or we have people from my Patreon page here where we discuss just music, basically. Uh, it's a fun, troll-free environment. And um, yeah, um, if you want to, you can subscribe or follow the show. Uh, it goes out live on 14 different platforms and there are a bunch of others where you can subscribe to the replay, which I turn into the audio podcast or I turn into an audio podcast after that. And, um, from there, um, it comes out on all your favorite podcasting platforms, Apple, Spotify, Amazon, so on and so forth. So we have Mr. Downey back there. Sorry about that. I don't know. I'm not sure what happened, but my uh, my internet yeah. completely disappeared. Yeah, that's the vanity. I, I kept seeing the uh, the signal keep going up and down, and you started to freeze. I'm like, okay, well, maybe we can ride the wave out, but it eventually just uh, yeah. I thought we might ride the wave. We didn't make it. Yeah. Um. So okay. So MTV was having their wanna be a VJ contest. Yeah. 
the nearest location to Indy was Chicago. And I pitched uh, a story to Punk Planet, who was a magazine based in Chicago at the time, where I was like, wouldn't it be funny if I went to this and tried to get as far through it as I can? you know, try to make my way as far into the contest as I can and then write an article, you know, taking the piss out of MTV and making fun of the whole, uh, the whole circus and punk planet, uh, Dan Sinker, the guy who ran it was loved it. And so I went up to Chicago and waited in line with everybody and did the, you know, made my way a certain distance through there, there were kind of like a series of, of, I guess what you would describe as like mini interviews, mm-hmm. Or someone would talk to you and um but yeah again it was very promotional it was like like an american idol audition would become so at a certain point i got a certain distance through the process and somebody pulled me aside and said hey man don't take this the wrong way but who are you and and what are you really doing here and i was like what do you mean and he's like clearly you don't care about being an mtv vj uh, like, what are you up to? And I was like, all right. So I came clean and I was like, I'm a writer and I'm doing an article for a magazine. Like just, we just wanted to see how far I could get through this and, uh, you know, do a funny piece about it. And the guy was like, that's great. That's the best thing I've ever heard. That's hilarious. That's amazing. I love that. Hey, come here for a second. He takes me into this like other room where there's like these other people who weren't out mixing with everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's like, can you just do me a favor? Can you just tell them what you just told me? So I tell this room full of people what I'm doing and they're all laughing and they all think it's great. And they start kind of asking me some questions like, so where are you from? And where do you work? And what, who, like, who, who are your favorite bands? And like, what are you into? And this kind of stuff. And, um, and, uh, can we get your info? And so I gave him my, my phone number and, then it was just like, as quickly as it began, they were just like, okay, well, we'll see you later. Like, you're obviously being ejected from the contest. <laughs> but we just thought this was funny and, you know, nice meeting you and, you know, no, 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 no hard feelings, but hit the road. <laughs> right. So I left and, you know, didn't really think anything about it. And then uh, about two weeks later, I got a, a message I was like, hey, uh, you know, my name's so-and-so. We met in Chicago. I'm a casting director at MTV in New York City. I was wondering if you would be interested in coming to New York for a few days. And so I called the guy back and I'm like, what? Like, is this a joke? You know, and uh, and this was, you know, it was 99. It was like MTV still was relevant. Right. And uh, basically what he explained to me was that MTV News was trying to launch a daily news show, which is something that they've been trying to do forever right. and have still never done. And they were ca- they had, they were casting two hosts and four news correspondents. And they'd already found the four correspondents and they were looking for the two hosts. Each correspondent corresponded to a different genre. So they had hired a guy named Sway mm-hmm. uh, to be the hip hop reporter. Right guy named Ian Robinson to cover metal and rock. Suchin Pak to, to cover pop music and a guy named Gideon Yego to do like indie rock and hipster stuff. Right. So that was how they brought all four of them on. And of course, Sway went on to become a very, and he was already, he was a big like uh, radio personality in the hip hop world right. before that. But uh, yeah, so again, long story short, they 
flew me to New York. Uh, I spent a day auditioning to host this show. You know, I'm like reading a teleprompter for the first time. I mean, it was all like, you know, we auditioned in the TRL studio. Mm -hmm. Um, They didn't like what I was wearing. And they were like, do you want to pick some like a jacket or something off of this rack? And it was like Carson Daly's wardrobe. So I like (laughs) put on this Carson Daly jacket. I like left with it afterwards. But um, so I'm there auditioning for the whole day. And then at the end of the day, they were like, they were like, uh, can you stay a second day? Um, we want to test your chemistry with some of the, they were looking for a male host and a female host with some of the girls we're bringing in tomorrow. And so I'm thinking like, wow, I, that must mean I have this job. Well, that's pretty amazing. Right. Stayed a second day, did the whole thing again, met uh, Dave Holmes, met Matt Pinfield, uh, did all this stuff, read news reports, pretended to like host a live segment, did all this stuff. And then I got kind of this, you know, all right, don't call us. We'll call you. See you later. And nothing. Just nothing. Didn't hear anything like a year goes by. Totally. Obviously, at this point, I've forgotten about it. Never saw an MTV News Daily Show come about. So I was at Milwaukee Metal Fest. Or no, sorry. New Jersey Metal Fest for Metal Maniacs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was doing a report on the festival. And I'm in like this media room and I saw there was a crew from MTV news there. And so I went over and introduced myself and I started talking to them and I was like, Hey, it's super random, but about a year ago, ball, ball, told them the whole story. And they said, yeah, they ended up casting this guy. And then the show didn't end up happening and, and this and this and that. And they were like, but you're into metal. And I was like, yeah, that's like my main, my main thing. And they were like, well, we're, we're looking for a good metal and rock writer uh, for the site. Send us some clips. Mm-hmm. And so through a whole different department, I ended up sending in clips to MTV News via the dot-com editorial side. Right. And to answer your question about an important story, I sent all these clips. I sent a bunch of music stuff. But one of the things that was in there was uh, a cover story that I'd done for the local weekly, my first cover story ever about anything, that was actually about a local no-kill spay-neuter animal shelter that this guy had started and it had all this resistance from the local humane society. And it was this whole story that involved like political corruption and all this crazy stuff. It was about as far from music as you could get, but it was something I was interested in and passionate about and chased it. And I had a great editor work with me and blah, blah, blah. So one of the vice presidents at MTV news who called me and offered me um, a writing job (laughs) told me that it was actually that story that uh, he really loved and that uh, he didn't even mention any of the music writing I had done. He just, he was really into the spay neuter shelter cover that I did for the weekly. And he had all these questions about it and whatever. And uh, yeah. So then my first MTV news story ended up being about the beef between Everlast and Eminem. Oh, wow. Which this was <laughs> October 2000. So 21 years ago this month. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that was something that was happening in mixtape culture that hadn't hit the internet yet. And I was a big House of Pain fan. I was an Eminem fan. And uh, I ended up breaking that story for them. And it was the first thing I ever wrote for the news department. So that brings us, you know, a year later, my band breaks up. I moved to California. I'm in California. The whole, like, don't call us, we'll call you. Mm-hmm. That casting guy calls me again. Now it's late 2001. It's a good 
two, two and a half years from that want to be a VJ thing. And that guy called me and he was like, yeah, I told you I'd keep you in mind if the right thing came along. <laughs> and this is a good, this is the fake it till you make it part of my story because he said, um, he's like, I know you're a music writer. And I was like, yeah, you know, I'm actually writing for MTV news now. And he's like, Oh, he had no idea. It's such a huge company. And, uh, he was like, I know you're a music guy, but, um, do you also write about movies? Do you report on movies? Right. And I said, yeah, totally. Of course. <laughs> and it was a complete lie. I had never written a single word about movies anywhere professionally. I love movies. Mm -hmm. Cinema and music are kind of twin passions. Right. But, um, but yeah, I just was like, yeah, totally. Um, so that led to, he brought me in to audition to host a movie show that MTV was doing in LA. And I ended up, it ended up coming down to, it was between me and, and one other guy. The other guy got the gig, but then they asked me if I would uh, come on and write the show. So I ended up writing 18 episodes of that. And then that all developed into what became a full-time news correspondent gig there for a long time. Uh, so I was there uh, full-time for quite a while and then was there freelancing even longer after that full-time run went through. But so, yeah, so I would say that low-cost spay, spay neuter shelter story was a big deal for me, uh, unbeknownst to me at the time where that would lead. Uh, and, you know, going all the way back to that first piece that I did. And then I would also say somewhere around that same timeline, another pivotal story was uh, cover. I, my first national cover story was for Alternative Press on uh, the band uh, Dashboard Confessional. Okay. And that was pivotal because at the time, AP was going through this kind of identity crisis where they were trying to like be spin, mm -hmm. try to keep up with like the big rock magazines, and they were throwing anything on the cover from like Limp Biscuit to Tori Amos to Insane Clown Posse to just like really confused um identity wise and they had just done a cover on afi and this was pre-major label for afi right but it did so well it like smashed you know they'd done a puddle of mud cover the month before puddle of mud was on like a triple platinum record they're all over the radio all over mtv nobody bought the issue of the magazine then they put afi on the cover afi is completely underground has no radio no mtv no record sales total sell through just like blows through the roof. So that's when they kind of started to get a handle on like, Oh, if you're, if you're one of a bunch of media outlets covering these huge bands versus you're the only one covering this specific diehard scene. So my dashboard cover was the first, like after the AFI thing, their first like full on, like, let's go for it. Yeah. You know, let's put this kid on the cover who, who sold a hundred thousand records period. And, um, and we did, and that was that ended up being my first cover story. So that was that was a big, big deal. Also, yeah, it's so interesting how that happens. Where you interview someone who, as you said, you know, Puddle of Mud was huge back then on that debut album, but they're also in so many different places at the same time. It's also yeah. hard for people to kind of wade through the saturation of what's taking place. Um, I've had interviews where, you know, I see that they're getting interviewed by 30 people. So I purposely hold the interview for like a month, knowing Ooh, that at smart. that point in time, you know, they're still going to be promoting an album because they're still going to be going out on tour and whatnot. But at the same time, 
uh, you're not, you know, people aren't going to have to wade through all that same noise. And at the same time, I remember when I first started doing the, um, the podcast, the second person that I interviewed was uh, Dave Menachetti of Y&T. Getting back to uh, Bob's yesterday and today's uh, references in that yeah. interview. And, you know, it's a band that was popular at one point in time. And, you know, I just looked at it as, wow, I, I get to interview a guy that I listened to, you know, 30, 40 years ago. This is, mm-hmm. this will be cool. And the interview took off. I mean, it, it registered at that time, like in the tens of thousands. I'm like, whoa. I'm like, so I just interviewed somebody who's on a major label that kind of got okay numbers, but then someone who was more of like an, uh, a niche following, which is similar to what you're saying with Dashboard at that time, yes. where they really took off. That's what kind of made them take off is that they built that following. And without you realizing, maybe an interview that you didn't think was you know, going to have the same legs all of a sudden goes in a totally different direction than what yeah. you thought was, was going to take place. So for sure. And I would say part of that alchemy also is that a band like a puddle of mud at the time who was massive mm-hmm. triple platinum or whatever. Most people who had bought that record or liked the song on the radio mm-hmm. could pass any member of that band on the street and have no idea, <laughs> right? you know, or wouldn't be able to name anyone from the band. Yes. Whereas all 100,000 kids who had bought the dashboard CD at that time knew exactly who Chris Caraba was, right. knew every single word, knew everything about him, obsessively, you know, studied every detail they could, they could get a hold of. So, you know, there, there's something to be said for that part of it also. Right. Ab- absolutely. Yeah. I agree with you 100%. I had this discussion about a week ago with somebody talking about um, albums like the the difference between an album back in the day going gold and going several times platinum were the casual fans. The diehards Mm -hmm. will always buy a band's albums, their merch, so on and so forth. But those casual fans that listen to, as you said, you know, the, um, those three big puddle of mud songs really had no idea who they were. You know, they, like the, 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 the way I slap your ass or whatever that line was out of that song, they thought that was a big deal and they bought it because of that, you know, it was kind of a novelty uh, at the moment when that came out. Um, so yeah, it's the casual fan obviously isn't going to invest in a band long-term, which is what, yeah. what you need for, a lot of the different bands that we're talking about, the reason why they still have fans all these years later are because those diehards have always stuck around. So mm-hmm. a lot of people don't, I, I don't think they realize that. That's why I think, um, and I was going to touch upon Metallica a little later, but that's why I think Metallica has been able to have the staying power that they have. Uh, even with, everything that's gone on over the years, whether people have enjoyed the, um, the albums or not, they've still had a large enough fan base 
that they're still selling stadiums out for a reason. I mean, they've touched. Yeah. And, and, and people with them, people are always paying attention is the argument that I make. Uh, even when it's to complain about the latest record or the latest haircut or the latest <laughs> advertising campaign for, you know, high fashion clothes or whatever it is that people are, are whining about. They're always in the discussion. Whereas there's so many bands that are, forgotten or dismissed that uh, no one's paying attention to what they're doing. Right. And Metallica, it's like even people that actively hate them now, they love them so much at one time right. that they're still paying attention. <laughs> so every time there's something happening, they're aware of it. Right. You know, I find that to be fascinating and a real testament to like what they've achieved. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They, the, the, Oh, well, I'll I'll hold this for later because I have a, a bunch of Metallica related questions for you. I, I don't want to steer too far away from what we've been talking about. Yeah, and and my answers won't all be so long. Those were those were life story questions. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Um, <laughs> you've worn so many hats over the years. We've talked about journalist and management. You've interviewed. I mean, your reel on your page just speaks for itself. You know, all the people that you've gotten to talked to over the years when I was promoting the interview today, I said, yeah, you know, just the casual picture of you and Tony Iommi on, on couch talking <laughs> to one another, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, that was a fun day. You've written uh, <laughs> books with people out of everything that you've done. Is there anything that still makes you nervous in 2021? Can you go into an interview and still get nervous? Can you, you know, address a band behind the scenes because they want you to manage them or someone wants you to help them write a book. Do these things still, you know, is there one thing that sticks out is really giving you butterflies before, you know, going into the situation? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, because for, for me, it, it's not about the level of fame or success that the person I'm talking to has achieved mm -hmm. so much as it's about, the impact that they've had on me right. personally. Right. You know, so, uh, you know, at MTV in the early two thousands interviewing Brittany and Christina, which I did was a lot easier for me than the time I got to interview Billy Idol. Uh, whereas that Billy Idol interview wasn't anything anyone else I worked with cared about. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, whereas there was like all these expectations and pressure on a Brittany or a Christina interview that, that I, I was into doing, but I wasn't. Yeah you know, I'm not nervous about it in that sense. Um, the last time I can remember really feeling super nervous, um, a long time ago at this point, I think maybe 2004, uh, but was Hetfield. Um, I've, I've only interviewed him once okay. and it was an amazing experience. It was an awesome situation, but that was intimidating. I mean, cause you know, they're my favorite band of all yeah. time. The front man primary songwriter, lyric writer. He's like 10 feet tall in person, <laughs> you know, and uh, he's Hetfield, you know? So uh, you feel, you feel like, you know, those guys from being such a fan over the years. And um, I've interviewed Kirk a handful of times and he's just as personable and, and awesome as, as you would want him to be. And, and, and James was great. It was a great interview, but I was definitely intimidated. And I, I, <laughs> You know, in 2004, we we weren't really as familiar with the Metallica jam room as I think we all are now. Right. 
but they have their like tuning room where they warm up before the show. And uh, I got to do the interview in their tuning room. And so I'm in there like moving their stuff around to set up my interview shot. Oh, wow. You know, at one, at one point I'm like picking up Hetfield's guitars and like moving them over a few feet, you know, and <laughs> that, I think I was more nervous doing that than when they came in the room. Sure. <laughs> Just like <laughs> being in there by myself. I was me and a camera guy being in there and like, you know, move like being amongst their gear right. in this like intimate setting, you know, uh, that I think was, that was the last time I can remember being like really nervous. Gotcha. Out of all of the things that you've done over the years, what do you feel was the hardest? Hmm. The hardest. Um, Maybe not the hardest, but the most complicated was uh, the series of interviews I did with Tim Lambesis uh, from Azalea Dying, mm -hmm. which, you know, everybody's familiar with this story now. Mm -hmm. uh, this was less than a year after his arrest. He, he didn't he didn't do any interviews uh from the moment he was arrested until after he got out of prison a few years later right except for one which was mine and so that was complicated for a lot of reasons that you could probably guess just by nature of that sure but um i guess that was the hardest in the sense that it was the most complicated because there were a lot of just a lot of moving parts a lot of things to juggle a lot of things to consider mm -hmm. um and this this isn't even about the, the the specifics of the interview itself. I actually didn't find to be that difficult sitting in a room with him and talking because we knew each other beforehand. But everything else surrounding, like right. putting the interview out there and um, all of that, was was uh, was pretty complicated. <laughs> yeah, to say the least. Yeah, I was going to say that's probably putting it mildly. <laughs> yeah everything that went down um in retrospect was there ever an interview that you were going into thinking i've heard all these things about this person i'm prepared but i hear they're a handful and the interview actually turns out much better than you anticipated um yes and that would be noel gallagher Wow. Oasis is in my five favorite bands of all time. And, you know, the Gallagher brothers both are notoriously difficult, quote unquote, opinionated, whatever you want to say. Mm -hmm. And I was enough of a fan that I understood a lot of the nuances, but you still just never know. Mm -hmm. and, and that was actually my first week in the L.A. office at MTV. I w was hired ostensibly to cover movies mm -hmm. and I just, just so happened I shared an office with a guy who became one of my close friends who uh, was a music guy and we got to talking and he's like, so you're, you're like a music guy also, you know, and cause he just thought I was a movie guy when I came in right. and um, we got talking. And he was like, Hey, would you, would you mind helping me out with something? He's like, I actually have two interviews today. I'm, I'm double booked. Uh, would you mind doing, would you mind doing one of them for me? Um, it's just, it's happening just down the street. 
and I was like, sure, who's it with? And he was like, do you remember that band from the 90s, Oasis? <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> you know, little did Corey know that like a month later when I unpacked everything, I would have a wall-sized Gallagher Brother poster <laughs> in that office him and I shared. Right. But I was just like, dude, are you kidding? And, and, and I'm actually glad that it happened with such short notice and in such a crazy way. Mm-hmm. Because I didn't have an, that much time to get super nervous about it, because I probably would have, right. like a Hetfield. Uh, but yeah, he was. They were, I think, playing Coachella that year. He was staying. This is the MTV office in Santa Monica, and he was staying uh, in a hotel in Santa Monica. And I went over there with a couple crew guys who I just met, you know, co coworkers, and. They, those guys, made us like 10 minutes late getting there. Oh, wow. And so my first impression, my first sight of Noel Gallagher was the three of us come walking in and he's sitting in the lobby on a couch and he look, and I'm kind of walking ahead and he looks right up at me and he goes. <laughs> and I was like, no, you know, right. and then and then it, it ended up being so awesome. It was uh, he was fantastic and you know gave us way more than we ever could have even used especially back then um but yeah super generous with his time funny forthcoming and you know not to break my arm pat myself on the back but i think anybody who's interested in this stuff that you and i do it's important in those situations anybody like that once once they realize that you know what you're talking about mm-hmm. in regards to them, right? You know, even the worst of the worst, they just want someone to be interested in who they are and what they have to say and understand them. And I think a lot of these artists that don't have much patience with a lot of journalists mm-hmm. are the ones who end up in scenarios with people who don't really know shit, mm-hmm. you know, and, th- and that ends up, I think taking a turn you know when if you're sitting down with axel rose and you're like so uh, so which is the guy in the top hat you know right like, he's probably going to be a jerk you know right but um yeah i sit down with him and i tell him i'm from indiana you know what i mean it's like anything yeah. any sort of like they're human beings you know so uh yeah so i've been really lucky i, I will say as a rule because people do ask and i'm sure you get asked this all the time too you know, who's a jerk and who's nice and, and all that sort of stuff. Like I figured out a long time ago that it's, it tends to be the bigger they are, the nicer they right. are. And it's the, it's the, it's the, the has-beens, the never were's, mm-hmm. the sea level, they're the jerks. And, and, and I think it's because like, if I walk into a room with Julia Roberts or, or Ben Affleck, they don't have anything to prove to me. Right. Right. If anything, they might want to prove how down to earth and cool they are. Mm-hmm. Like, I know I'm like up on, you know, elevated on these clouds. I'm, I'm just a normal person, you know? Right. Um, it's the kind of C-list people that I find have like the entourage, you know, um, I worked on this show for Marvel a couple of years ago. It was like a, a talk show and we had uh one of the things I did is I helped book a bunch of the guests who came in for the show and, you know, Clark Gregg, who uh, plays agent Coulson and all the Marvel movies, right. you know, biggest film franchise of all time, just showed up by himself and his little mini Cooper uh, method man brought like one person with him. 
you know, we had a bunch of comedians, Paul Shear, Ron Funches, who all came by themselves, Paul F. Tompkins. They were all super nice. It was the kid who was famous on Vine at the time. Oh, wow. It was like three years ago. He showed up with like six people and was a total douche and was totally unprepared for the interviews and, you know, had the air of like, someone is here. Someone has arrived. You know, right. it's like, it's like dude, Clark Gregg was here yesterday <laughs> in his mini Cooper by himself, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so that's been sort of, if there's any kind of semi-universal truth to that, that's been my experience that the, the bigger they are, uh, the nicer they are. The, the most difficult interview I've had, and I chalk this up more to the system of press junket interviews where you get four or five minutes and they're being interviewed by 50 people a day, sitting yeah. in the same spot, answering the same questions. Uh, the one time that I got to interview Tom Hardy was for the movie Warrior. Okay. And he was paired up with his co-star, Joel Edgerton, and uh, he just didn't say anything. You know, and in his defense, it's four minutes, you know, and, and Joel kind of took over and did the talking. But but yeah, he just sat there in, in silence. And I've heard and I've heard that about him. Uh, James Franco, there, there's a few of them, but I think it's more they have less of a tolerance for that setting. I don't I don't think it's personal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those are all people that if you can get it going and get some momentum like they're great, mm-hmm. um, I think it's just hard for them to really actively participate in those in those settings i also uh heath ledger he did this movie called brothers grim mm-hmm. with matt damon and i had them together and matt damon did all the talking and heath ledger said hello and goodbye <laughs> but i got the sense there that that was how every interview went all day mm-hmm. like i think it, you know i think that was just the rhythm that they got into i just don't I, you know i think heath ledger was just painfully shy at least he seemed to be in that setting yeah. Well, I, so yeah, I, I get that because what a lot of people don't realize it's, it's like a cattle call. You know, a lot of times, like I mentioned before, I'm giving an interview with somebody, but it's the 12th interview they're doing that day. So they're already going into the interview saying, fuck, is he going to ask me about the tour? Is he going to ask me, you know, yeah. uh, what do people think about the album? You know, just the same generic questions over and over again. and like you're saying, you're, you're talking about Noel Gallagher where you're talking to him in a specific setting. You talk to him with interest about stuff that, you know, that not everyone is going to ask him. So right there, he's going to be invested. He's going to, he's going to want to talk to you, you know, and at the end of the day, just have a, a good conversation, you know, um, I get asked all the time similar questions to what you said uh, before, you know, who's the best, who's the worst, you know, who's the most famous person you've talked to. And my answer is always, I don't know if he's the most famous person, but he's the person I've liked to speak to the most. And I said, it's John Bush, but because there's an emotional Mm. connection with the music, with his lyrics, with different periods of time in my life, and I've spoken to him like eight times already, and he's always great. So to me, I'll take that interview over, like you're saying, you know, with your interview with Billy Idol, I'll take that interview over the biggest person on the planet because there's more going on there that 
you know, there's more of an interest with you interviewing them and they notice it. So they, they're, they're also more interested yeah. in what you're talking to them about. Yeah, absolutely. And I a hundred percent agree. And John Bush, um, I've only interviewed him once. I actually had him on the Metallica podcast and what a sweet guy, yeah. super personable, super charming. And that, and also like you mentioned, you've interviewed him a bunch of times and you get, it, it's really nice when you get that rapport going. Right. Um, just that familiarity because there's a comfort level there. And that's something that I used to tell people a lot back in the day when I was first out here, there was a period of about two months where I interviewed Mandy Moore. This is when Mandy Moore was big. Right. Um, three or four times in the, in a period of a couple of months in that same couple of months, just by sheer coincidence, luck of the draw, whatever I interviewed Hillary Duff like six or seven times. <laughs> And Hillary Duff was somebody that I met mm -hmm. every time, every time she was meeting me for the first time mm -hmm. and it, whatever, you know, right. but uh, Mandy Moore, by contrast, who I'm interviewing less, but also regularly in the same time period by the second or third time, it's hugs. How you been? Blah, blah. We're not best friends. We're not exchanging numbers, but um, there's a humanity, a certain, and not to, who knows, what Hillary Duff's deal was at the time. She could be the loveliest person in the world. I don't know. But back then, you know, it was, yeah, it was nice to meet you. It was, you know, robot mode. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I'm the press. She's the talent. Right. It's just, we got our job to do and it's fine. And her, the interviews were fine. But that little extra rapport, that little extra comfort and familiarity goes so far yeah. in all these situations. Absolutely. Um Switching on over to your podcast, Speak and Destroy. Uh, everyone that I knew that had a band-specific podcast was a KISS podcast. And then <laughs> you came along, and I'm like, finally, as much as I love KISS, we have someone else that's putting a different spin on this. Um, yeah. What made you want to do a podcast and what made you decide to just do it a, a Metallica based podcast? Well, the initial, you know, I, I think the way a lot of things end up happening, right. Is, is you, you end up making the thing that you want. Mm -hmm. And as I was discovering that there were band centric podcasts, uh, you know, there's a bunch of Taylor Swift podcasts. There's uh, <laughs> like you said, a bunch of kiss podcasts. Um, I started looking for Metallica podcasts and couldn't find any. Right. Um, it turns out there was one that had very sporadically published uh, called, I think, Metalli Chat. Okay. So, so shout out to those guys because they were technically ahead of me by about a year, but I, but I couldn't find, I didn't find it. And uh, so it was really born from a combination of like, this is a podcast I want to listen to and I don't know why it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Combined with it's become a running joke with some people I know that, uh, that uh, I'm going to work Metallica into every conversation. Mm -hmm. So that sort of was the other half of doing the podcast. It was like, well, I'm talking about Metallica all the time anyway. Why not put that to some productive use? And uh, originally even I was like, I can just slice out parts of my other interviews I'm doing for other things when Metallica comes up and make the podcast. But, um, and then as fate would have it, <clears throat> I believe this was July 2016 came up with the name speak and destroy grabbed the dot com grabbed the twitter grabbed the instagram you know went and started grabbing all the socials 
and then started developing it and coming up with the concepts and getting podcast gear, gear together and, and talking to people and setting up interviews and getting ready to launch. And then that fall, a few months later, uh, my buddy Ethan Luck, who used to play guitar in the band Demon Hunter, a band that I manage, mm-hmm. texted me one day and he's like, dude, guess what? I'm starting a Metallica podcast. He's like, you're the first person I thought of to tell about it. Like, isn't that awesome? And I was like, um, I'm starting one too. And he's like, what? <laughs> no way. And it became like kind of a friendly weirdness, but it was definitely a little weird. Mm-hmm. And I actually, and I actually said right from the jump, I was like, you know, if you're doing one and I'm doing one and we're already old friends and whatever, what we should just do it together. Mm-hmm. Let's just do it together. And he said, well, I'm doing mine with my buddy. He's here in Nashville. You're in California. It's really my buddy and I's idea. And, you know, we're just going to be like two guys talking about Metallica. Like we're going to go through all the records and rate them and, and tell these stories and talk about this and talk about shows we've been to and whatever. And I said, well, mine's totally different than that. Uh, mine's going to be an interview podcast where I'm going to interview people about Metallica. So people who are directly involved with the band indirectly, you know, that uh, have some sort of connection to the band or are just influenced by the band. So every episode is going to be some me and someone else, an interview. I'm a journalist. It'll be journalist type stuff. Right. And, uh, and I said, so why don't we just combine our efforts and then, you know, we can even do them kind of like you guys can be like the hosty guys and I can be the guy that does the interview and we can mix. And that way there won't be so much pressure on us to crank out an episode every week. And, you know, we'll all be doing it. And he said, well, let me talk to my friend. I don't know his friend at all. Um, he's like, I don't know. Let me talk to my friend. And then he called me back a couple of days later and he was like, yeah, we talked about it. We're just, we just want to go our own way and just do our own thing. And I was like, well, that's cool. Well, um, just so we don't, step on each other's toes you know like we talked about yours is going to be like you and your buddy talking about metallica mine's going to be me interviewing people and he goes well we'll still interview people sometimes and i'm like why does this have to be weird i was like what do you mean you'll still interview people sometimes he's like well you know my my buddy is the manager at grimy's and metallica did that secret show here at grimy's and like we'll probably have him on to talk about that And i was like oh well, that's no big deal. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking like, yeah, I've already set up interviews with M shadows and blah, blah, blah. you know, I had all this like stuff going. I'm like, Oh, well that's, that's fine. And so they uh, launched theirs. I launched mine and right around the same time to their credit. They've been extremely consistent. I don't think they've ever missed a week. Uh, they have a really active Patreon. They're both musicians. They do Metallica covers and put out songs. They have merch, um, really active listenership. Um, you know, people making them things and sending them things. And it has been mostly just them kind of talking about Metallica. They do have guests on from time to time, uh, sometimes the same guests that I've had. Um, but uh, we've coexisted in that space. And then I got to tell you, man, that's that's four or five years ago. Mm-hmm. There's like a dozen Metallica podcasts now. <laughs> right. Like today. <laughs> and um and Toomey and I laugh about it all the time, which is why somewhere in here in the chat he just made it yeah, the first all interview based metallic because there's another guy who does metallic cast and in all of his social media he puts the in all capitals Metallica podcast. So uh, you know, Toomey and I started joking that I was, you know, I'm 
I'm the first interview Metallica interview podcast, you know? Um, what? Well, so that, that guy was saying the, and then, so I started saying the first mm-hmm. and then the other guys in Nashville popped up and they were like, well, you're not the first, actually these guys. And it was, yeah, like a super small obscure one that never updates. That's just two guys talking <laughs> that was around before all of us. Right. But yeah, dude, there are so many. Um, and, uh, the only time that it's annoyed me is there was a, there's another one that popped up. It's called uh, and podcast for all. Okay, it's one of the newer ones. And I had been putting a bunch of interviews in the bank, and so I found Phil Toll, the uh, performance enhancement coach from some kind of monster. Right. Tracked him down, got him to come on to my podcast. It was the first podcast he had ever done. Mm-hmm. Never been on a podcast before. We had this amazing chat. And I was like 16 episodes ahead. So I put it in the bank, put it on the calendar, and I rolled this episode out in a few weeks. In between the time that I did the interview and put it out, and Podcast for All interviewed him and put it up immediately. <laughs> and, and so then, of course, when I announced mine, that kid was like in my comments on Instagram going, oh, I, I see you interviewed Phil. Cool. Yeah, he's cool. You know, yeah, I'm glad you got to talk to him also after we did. And like, well, technically, I talked to him months before you did. And I was the first person he ever did a broadcast with. That was the only time it's ever annoyed me. But um, I look at it, especially since Metallica now announced their own official podcast, yeah. which just launched, a, you know, I think they're seven or eight episodes in. Yeah. I, I realized, you know, I've listened to like three different podcasts about The Office. You know, what one's hosted by Brian Baumgartner right. and have like everyone from the show behind the scenes and on camera on it. And then there's another one that's, uh, you know, the actresses, Jenna Fisher and Angela Kinsey. Um, and I love all of it. You know, it's a big enough show. There's a big enough fandom that all these different podcasts, even the ones that are really similar, the ones that are official and unofficial and whatever, like there's room for all of it. Mm-hmm. So uh, like you said, before mine popped up, it was kind of crazy that there even wasn't one. So right. the fact that there's like a dozen of them now is like, well, I mean, uh, you know, more power to it. I guess there should be. Um, and the feedback that I hear on the official one, you know, which was made by Amazon and they hired a production company and da, 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 I, I just, I hear that it's too slick. Um, you know, it has like a swanky voiceover narration and, uh, they're constantly reintroducing people to you. And this is what I've heard. I haven't listened to it. Right. Um, so I like to think that I still have a niche where, you know, it's a, it's a 90 minute, two hour long conversation, raw podcast conversation mm-hmm. of two people talking like you and I are right now. Um, you know, and, and is the official Metallica podcast going to have the guitar player from Whitechapel on? No, I will still get, it kind of gets back to that dashboard puddle of mud. thing, Right. Um, you know, I, there's definitely uh, people out there who I think are interested in the guitar player from Whitechapel's uh, Metallica fan. Sure. Uh, so yeah, that's basically the story there. And, you know, the hardest thing is being consistent about it. As you know, um, right. there's months at a time where I get an episode up every week and then there a month goes by where I haven't gotten one up at all. So, in you know, four or five years I've done, I think a hundred and five episodes or something like that. Uh, in that same time, I think Metal Up Your Podcast is uh, 
in the hundreds. I don't know where they are. 300. Right. Uh, we started at like the same time basically. And you know, they've been up, up every week. So um, yeah, it's definitely a labor of love. It's not, um, you know, paying the bills or anything, but <laughs> it's still fun to do. And right. Uh, I've had some amazing conversations and gotten to talk to really cool people and, uh, yeah, people love to talk about Metallica. So I don't think that there'll ever be a shortage of Metallica conversations to have. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I did when we were talking or when you're talking, I'm thinking, Oh shit. I did a, I did an episode on injustice for all back in, I want to say, Oh eight. Oh no. I started podcasting in nine. So it was, uh, 2010. And I had started a series of episodes where I called it the classic album series. And I interviewed different members of bands about specific albums. That's right. And Which is exactly what the official Metallica podcast is right now with the black. Right. Album. It's, it's kind of different. Yeah. Obviously mine was a lot more lo-fi as, as you're saying. And, and back then, mm-hmm. you know, we could get away with, cutting in music and stuff like that, which obviously now is yeah. a big no, no. Uh, although I was listening to episode seven before, um, before you coming on and they actually played two of the covers off of the blacklist completely on the, on the latest episode. So that was sure. kind of interesting to me as a music nerd, as a music fan, I do like the podcast because you're hearing the members talk about different things in hindsight. You know, it's kind of like an updated version of the. Um, it's like a behind the music. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And they have, you yeah. know, Bob Rock and they have, uh, you know, different critics, uh, different, you know, Ross Halfin is on and there, you know, there's a bunch of different people involved. Um, at the end of the show, they do mention pop curse. So I thought that maybe there was some type of a connection there, but. No, that's just an extra kick in the pants. There, that podcast coincidentally is made by a company called Pop Cult. Okay. So they're yeah they're saying Pop Cult. I would imagine at the end of that, and it's even stylized the same as Pop Curse. Apparently, just a total coincidence that there's a Metallica podcast produced by a company called Pop Cult that has appeared five years after my Metallica podcast produced by Pop Curse. All right, so there, so there you go. That's my uh... shrug shrug emoji. Right. Yeah. Tonight is after years of playing drums. So (laughs) I got it. No, I don't, I don't blame you for mistaking it for it because it is remarkably similar. (laughs) Right. We were talking before a little bit about, in my opinion, they're one of the most misunderstood bands at this point in time, but I think a lot of it is through hearsay because again, I'm, I become like Larry David. I become anal to a point where I start to type things on social media and I erase them. I'm like, nah, I don't want to, I don't want to argue with anybody. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And then there's just, you know, there's one point where like the, the fuse just goes off and somebody would say, well, you know, they're so terrible live now because all they do is play the hits. And I'm thinking, okay, when's the last time you've a seen a set list of theirs or seen them live? Because outside of, uh, Enter Sandman, Sad But True, Nothing Else Matters, and possibly The Unforgiven, Creeping Death, Speak and Destroy, and For Whom the Bell Tolls, and One. Everything else is rotated. And I just named eight songs out of a close to three-hour set that they play every night. Um, I also like to bring up the fact 
that they did those triple X shows for their 30th anniversary where they played 80 songs. Oh yeah. Four yeah. nights. Uh, yeah. Only repeating uh, seek and destroy. I almost said speak and destroy. Uh, and no, and no guest drummers, just Lars up there the whole time. Right. Which a lot of people yeah. again, bitch about his drumming, but I think a lot of people don't realize in hindsight, what important of a piece he is to the evolution of metal, not only as a drummer, but as a songwriter. Uh, growing up a drummer being told, you can't write songs because there are no drums mm-hmm. to write songs. And I can name you several drummers that surely have, you know, would disagree with that statement, Lars being one of them. Um, and he certainly, I mean, you know, Inner Sandman is their biggest song. It's one of the biggest songs of all time. Mm-hmm. Corey Taylor called it the stairway to heaven for our generation. Right. And Lars arranged that. That was a Kirk riff that Lars arranged. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, and there's not to mention the fact that we're still talking about Metallica, not in the same way that we might be contextualizing a lot of their peers over the years. Right is because of Lars and the decisions that he makes steering the ship. And also when it comes to those set lists, he writes those set lists. Mm-hmm. He's the set list guy. Um, he's the archivist. He's the, uh, and you know, much like the Beatles wouldn't sound like the Beatles without Ringo Starr. Mm-hmm. I think Sabbath doesn't sound like Sabbath without Bill Ward. Uh, Bill Ward is not a technically skilled drummer, mm-hmm. but he is the perfect drummer for Black Sabbath. And I think that's Lars and Metallica. It doesn't sound the same. I mean, I loved as a novelty, as a curiosity, I loved watching the videos of Joey Jordanson, you know, rest in peace, mm-hmm. playing drums for Metallica at, at download. Uh, and it's amazing, mm-hmm. but it's not the same. It doesn't sound like Metallica. It sounds like Metallica with Joey Jordanson playing drums, you know? Um, so, yeah, I found. A couple of things like you, a lot of it's lazy, you know, a lot of lazy criticisms. I, and hearsay, like you said, I, I have a friend who, um, she's a pretty big gamer. She's in the gamer culture and community. And Metallica a few years ago played the uh, Blizzard, the BlizzCon mm-hmm. festival in Anaheim here. And um, I te- remember texting her about it and I was like, oh, I'm going to go, I'm coming to BlizzCon. I wouldn't normally be at, but Metallica's playing and, and she's like, you know, eye roll emoji, like, ugh, I hate that they're there. And I'm like, you're not a fan. She's like, why are they, why are they trying to come into our community? They hate the internet. Oh, they- and it was just like, yeah, that's the, <laughs> they hate the internet. That That's like what it gets boiled down to the game of telephone, you know, a couple generations younger than us, mm-hmm. you know, a couple generations later is like, oh, they're that band that hates the internet. It's like, they are... They've been like digital pioneers. Mm -hmm. They were putting up soundboard recordings of their shows as MP3s on their website in like, what, 2006? Like, you know, I mean, like they were so far ahead on so much of this stuff. And when people are like, why were they, why were they fighting so hard? What, like they need another penny. It's like, no, that's the whole point. They didn't need another penny, you know? So ask yourself why, yeah, what were they fighting over? And it's like, they were fighting over, control they were fighting over distribution they were they ownership uh which affected everything i i say this all the time but there's a great charlie rose episode from the that era 
and the guests are Lars and Chuck D and the debate is about Napster. And if you watch that in 2020, and I love Chuck D every single thing Lars says 20 years ago about where things are going and how it's all going to happen is correct. And almost nothing Chuck D says is correct. (laughs) You know, Chuck D's like, yay, Napster. And Lars is like, boo, Napster. But then you watch an hour long of each of them articulating those two viewpoints, Mm -hmm. two very sharp, intelligent guys. And uh, Chuck D just couldn't have been more wrong about what all that was, all that meant. And Lars just calls it. He even talks about movies and TV shows and the effects that all that, all that's going to have on everything. Um, for good or bad. Right. So yeah, it, it, you find that those dismissals a lot of times are, are just these kind of hand-me-down stories that have been reduced to, you know, these like one sentence right. <laughs> summaries of an entire band. Oh, the band that hates the internet. Yeah. Yeah. Like, ugh, regardless God. of, like you said, live Metallica.com, regardless of allowing people yeah. to tape shows from the start, regardless. Of- yeah. If if you're ever part of their fan club, they actually tell you how you can engage oh with other people. You know, so, yeah. I mean, yeah. Asinine. It's unfortunately it's become, and and I mentioned this um, quite a few times. The metal society has become this. Let me look over my shoulder to see who's around to make sure that I say the cool thing as opposed to what the correct thing is today. When I was promoting this interview, I knew what Metallica song I was going to use for all the clips. I didn't give a damn what anybody said. The song is off of, is off of, um, St. Anger. It's the, um, unnamed feeling, which is one of my all time favorite riffs by the band. And it just felt like the right thing to play for this interview. The only place where I couldn't use it was on for YouTube shorts because they didn't have the song. I used, I believe the intro to, to seek and destroy on that. But, you know, at the end of the day and people that follow my show know that I, you know, I like being honest with people and I like that song, whether people like the album or not, it's funny moving over to Europe and seeing Mm. how the opinions are different with the band uh, seeing how, for example, an album like Load is held in high regard over here as a very important hard rock album, you know, whereas you look at maybe generations before us that followed the Stones or followed, uh, you know, Sabbath or, or, or Zeppelin uh, when they were putting out albums you know, as opposed to us kind of catching this stuff afterwards. Um, Yeah. You don't realize that those bands evolved and the fans didn't care. They still loved what they were putting out. So it's, again, if you're ever in a band, you want to evolve as a player. You want to continue to push the envelope and do different things, incorporate different things because Everyday life isn't the same. You evolve as a person, so you want to, again, incorporate stuff. So I've never had any issues with them wanting to try things. And there are some things that I love and some things that I don't care for. But that's normal. That's just everyday life. You yeah. Know? Yeah, of course. So. Of course. And and that's part of the, uh, you know, like a filmmaker. There's There's filmmakers I love 
And we allow that a lot more with filmmakers, with actors. Mm -hmm. You know, you can love someone's work and not love everything that they've put out. Right. And it's like, why doesn't why doesn't that translate with bands for some people? Um, or yeah. yeah, people really go out of their way to say the cool thing. But the interesting thing is, yeah, the cool thing changes mm -hmm. depending on who you're with, yes. generationally, geographically. You know, I I was trying to convince a friend of mine the other day about how many Metallica fans hate the Black Album, and he was just like, "There's no way." He's like, "It's so good. It's so beloved. Yeah. It's so huge." <laughs> It's the album that got me into the band. And I'm like, yeah. Uh, and everyone who's 10 years or more older than you says that it sucks. And that's when they sold out. Mm -hmm. And go back a little, bit, a little bit more. There is a contingent that hates Hand Justice for All. No way. Yeah. Dude, that's like the best one. Like, there's a whole huge segment of the fan base that's like, Cliff was gone, band over. Yes. You know, everything, everything since Cliff sucks. And then even further back, there were people that, complain that ride the lightning out of ballad and even further back than that people complained that kill them all didn't sound as fast and aggressive as no life to leather so that's just you know you're not i don't think anyone's doing themselves any favors by distinguishing themselves about what point they dropped off their love for a band you know it's like I, you know megadeth put out risk um Thank God I didn't stop listening to them because I would have missed Dystopia. Right. I would have I would have missed the last half of Endgame, which I think is probably the best thing they've done since Cryptic Writings. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you're just like, oh, you made this bad album, I don't like it. I'm done with you. Yeah, it, it, I just I've never been that way. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't make sense to me either. Yeah, for Celtic Frost, dude, you're gonna tell me Monotheist doesn't crush just because they made Cold Lake? Right. Well, it's <laughs> yeah. it's. It's dumb. It, it it doesn't it doesn't make sense. And you know, again, you talk about how actors and directors and stuff get seem to get second chances. Where you know maybe mm -hmm. you watch four or five movies of an actor, and then you say, "All right, now I'm bailing because after you know four or right. five movies that I don't like, then you know I realize this isn't this isn't going anywhere." Right. Bands like you're saying. You know, okay, so a band puts out a, a bad album. You're saying Dystopia. There was Risk. There was Super Collider. There was, you know, there are other songs or other albums in between that did have good material. It doesn't, at least to me, I don't get the whole, I'm jumping ship just because there was one album. Yeah. You know, just. I mean, M. Night Shyamalan came out with this like perfect movie and he's on the cover of Newsweek and everybody's calling him the new Hitchcock and whatever so much to live up to and then he makes some like mediocre movies bad movies but there's been good ones since then too right and it, yeah and if you were to have just vanished because they you know he made a he made a dud <laughs> you would miss out on so much more right so yeah and that, that's an interesting point in the metallica podcast they talk about how important it was that the black album happened 10 years into their career, as opposed to being their first album, because they mentioned the fact that it wouldn't have given them time to kind of grow or, you know, it would have all been downhill from there, as opposed to building to that moment and knowing how to handle that moment. So. Right. Right. Which is, yeah. I saw a quote from Courtney Love yesterday that said, um, Kurt might still be alive if another band had gotten big first. Right. 
It's like, woof, woof. Yeah, that's that. It is that's kind of difficult. Yeah, I saw um a a couple questions in here, uh, somewhere back here. Uh, Arturo asked, uh, "Are you less willing to ask the tough questions if an artist is nicer to you?" Mm-hmm. Um, I'll let you answer that first. <laughs> um, it's it's funny because I often think about how there are certain people that you interview that your opinion may change about them once you've actually spoken to them, where maybe you weren't a fan of the music going in, mm-hmm. but after you interview them, you're like, all right, let me give this another chance with a much more open mind. And you may be, you may grasp the artist or not at that time. Um, I personally, I mean, it depends where the, where the interview goes. I mean, a lot of times I write more questions than I, than I should. And depending on where it's going, I leave stuff out or I leave stuff in and I kind of gauge the person. I mean, I've had nightmare scenarios with people. And at that point you're like, fuck it. I don't care. (laughs) you know, but then there are other situations where you realize that the person is cool and you're like, all right, this question may be kind of a dick question. So it's not necessary. So that's just how I tend to play it. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, For me, I find that, you know, kind of to the contrary of of what the question kind of implies, maybe I, I, I feel that the nicer they are and the more of a rapport there is, the easier it is to ask a tough question right? because there's, um, there's an, a degree of trust where they know that you're not out to get them. Right. You know? Yes. Um, I, I couldn't have done that Tim Lambesis interview if we weren't super friendly with each other. Yeah. Uh, because I did ask a lot of tough questions and that, that interview ended up becoming one that I think said more about the person reading it in some instances mm-hmm. than the interview itself. <laughs> because I had a couple of people who were very close to the situation mm-hmm. on different sides of it come to me the same day and, and say like, what, what are you giving him all this good press for? Like they thought I was giving it, I was giving him a back rub with the interview mm-hmm. and then somebody else the same day asking why I, I was being so mean and rude to Tim during the interview. And then everybody else was like, this was a really balanced like interview. And I'm like, right. okay, well, that makes sense. This person who loves him and is in his corner thinks that I was too hard on him. And then this person who hates him and has been wronged by him in, in whatever capacity thinks that I was too nice and shouldn't have even done the interview at all. Everyone else is like, then you can feel like you, you know, did the right thing, I guess. Right. Well, to, to your point, Again, going back to this John in, John Bush interview that I did, again, having a rapport with him, I know that I can ask him certain questions because he just goes with it and gives me good answers for everything. I asked him, mm-hmm. for example, about um, with, the, with the Anthrax 40 documentary that they put out, the, the series, I told him I really enjoyed it, but I feel that when they got to worship music, they did some revisionist history. I said, they didn't include the fact that you were asked to sing on that album twice. They didn't Mm -hmm. include the fact that you did the majority of the big four shows. 
yeah, or, or or the fact that when it was up in the air with John and Joey, that Scott Ian was on yep, VH1 show. Classics, that metal show, and Eddie Trunk asked him, no, really, seriously, which one do you yeah. like better? Who's the better singer for the band? Who do you prefer? And when it was up in the air about which guy it was going to be, Scott Ian sheepishly said, John. Yep. And that gets erased, which, I mean, I guess I can't blame him for it. You got to fly the flag for thing you got. Yeah. Because, I mean, because John just didn't want to do it. Right. Right. And, I mean, I was, I've been lucky enough that he's explained that whole situation to me in the past. But I also brought up mm. the fact that, you know, as a fan, you're seeing him. You're seeing Dan Spitz. You're seeing Paul Crook. You're seeing all of these former members of the band. And they're advertising the streaming show. And I'm like, holy shit, we're going to get this big like show where everyone who was in the band is yeah. going to go up. And- like the Metallica 30th. Exactly. And that's yeah. exactly what I told John. I said, you know, I the Metallica 30 shows are the ones that ruined it for me because I now expect everyone to do something like that. And, yeah. and he he basically said, you know, well... The, the stream is whatever, you know, they did what they wanted to do, but it seemed like he kind of, kind of agreed with what I was, what I was. Yeah. Um, yeah. He, at the end of the day, he was happy that they still recognized his, his era of the band. And that's what was most important to him. So I get that. Yeah. And I, and I love the idea of him and Paul Crook going out and playing those songs because those songs aren't getting played otherwise. Right. You know, much like Sammy and Mikey doing the Van Hagar stuff, Van Halen wasn't playing those songs anymore. Right. So somebody had to. That's kind of the bummer about when the old singer goes back is when the the, uh, the newer stuff gets erased. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things I've always loved about Bruce Dickinson that's very classy yes. is he did a couple Blaze Bailey era songs immediately when he came back. Mm-hmm. Um and for whatever your opinion about it is, the fact that Slash and Duff are up there playing Chinese democracy songs. Yep. Axel is singing a Velvet Revolver song. Yep. I mean, what? You know, I think that that's, it's a lot of class. I think that those moves are good for the fans. It shows that people have like moved on. Um, uh, Jesse Leach is another one. He, uh, you know, they weren't going to abandon the Howard material just to get Jesse back. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think in those instances, I know that there was a minute there where they had Joey singing only. Yes. But um, much like Roth and Hagar, like, there's an issue there where, like, he just he can't do it. He can't sing like John. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as, as much as you, you know, Roth has his thing. He's the voice of Van Halen and all those classic records, blah, blah, blah. The reality is that David Lee Roth cannot sing the Sammy era stuff. Mm-hmm. Sammy can sing the Roth era stuff. So there's kind of, you know, there's that too. I get that. But uh, yeah, I agree. I, it, there was some revisionist history in that for sure, where, where John got a little short shrift. But I also understand when you're making that narrative arc mm-hmm. and this is the band you have now, the inclination to want to steer it that way. Right. Yeah. Um, Coming back to the Metallica stuff, what do you think about the covers album? Have you had a chance to check it out? Do you think how they how how they sequence the whole thing makes sense to you? 
Uh, Toomey and I actually checked out a lot of it uh, during his one of his uh, streaming shows on the NotFest Twitch. Okay. And, you know, my my take on covers in general are you, you could do a complete deconstruction, like the A Perfect Circle covers record. Right. You can do a super faithful rendition that's like a sound alike of the original. Or you can do a version that sounds like the original, but sounds like your band mm -hmm. wrote it. And Metallica, of course, are the kings of, of <laughs> it's like the original, but it sounds like they wrote right. it. Even whether it's Motorhead, Diamond Head, even the Nick Cave cover. Um, I think doing a super faithful sound alike is pointless. And the deconstructions, unfortunately for me, I don't find them to be much more than curiosities. You know, it's like a novelty. Like, oh, let's hear what this artist did with this well-known song. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's neat. And then that's kind of it, you know? Whereas, you know, when Sanctuary did Jefferson Airplane uh, or Nevermore did... I wonder, did they do Sound of Silence? They did some Simon Garfunkel song. Uh, you know, that was more of the like, it's faithful, but it sounds like it's their band. Right. I love those and I'll listen to those. Mm -hmm. um, Testament doing nobody's fault. Like there, there's some good ones, you know, but uh, yeah, just the, uh, the blacklist thing. I get the idea of it. I like the diversity of the artists they assembled. Of course, I love the charity aspect. You mentioned the sequencing. And since you brought it up, I do think it's a little strange. I think I would have rather heard, the whole album in order and then the whole album in order right. and then the whole album in order instead of a bunch of songs in a row. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Nevermore to do sound of silence. I thought so. Cause I, I don't disturb made a hit out of it, but I love the nevermore one, but uh, yeah, I, I, I just, I, I, I question. I said this to Toomey when we were doing Toomey's show, who is this for, right. you know, like what, like, who who out there is like yes and maybe there is someone um if anything the, the most positive thing i can say about it is i think you know like cherry glazer was one of the bands like there's some artists that i'm not familiar with that i might discover via that metallica blacklist and then go check out their stuff but by and large it, it just kind of seems like a more of a promotional bonus item than a real artistic peace right i hear you um the other thing i wanted to bring up that i kind of mentioned in the emails is an email of yours a newsletter that i got turned on to last year stream and destroy which i started seeing statistics pop up uh on various websites and and again for for the certain someone that keeps doing the middle finger or not the middle finger the index finger I'm, I'm being made fun of, by the way. That's the only reason that that's there in the chat. Um, oh. <laughs> um, the, I was wondering. The, the music nerd in me loves reading those types of newsletters. How many albums have sold this week? Uh, what, you know, the concert statistics, what streaming, what videos are being played? Things, things of that nature. So I saw that on, it was either Metal Injection or Metal Sucks or one of these and I looked further and I'm like, oh, wow, I can subscribe to this and get this stuff sent to me, you know, a few times a week. Absolutely. So it is one of the things that I look forward to every week. That's awesome. Yeah, it is money 
well spent. If you're like me and into all those types of things, it's um, stream and destroy. Again, similar to what I asked you about the podcast. What made you want to start this newsletter up? Uh, so the genesis of that goes back to managing bands um, around like 2007, 2008. At the back, you know, now I have a band and a producer. At one point, I had five bands and three producers mm -hmm. and a staff, you know, and, and all that. And around that time, I started sending this email around just to people that I managed where I would gather up and it was just sound scan at the time, which doesn't even exist now. <laughs> um, I would gather up weekly sales numbers for other bands in our genre mm -hmm. as a way to provide some context um, to my bands about like kind of where they stood in things, mm -hmm. you know, because it's, it's hard to gauge sometimes and, and there's right. perceptions about what band is big and what band isn't and why did that band get that tour and not us? Or why are we playing under them or why are, you know, that sort of stuff. I thought it would be beneficial to all of us to kind of have a, a more well-rounded broad picture. So I started sending that just to the dudes in the bands I managed. And then over time, people would say, Hey, I heard you send out this email. Can I get on it? Hey, I heard you send out this email. Can I get on it? And then it kind of grew. And, you know, I'm putting everybody in the BCC line. And uh, I will tell you that a turning point was around 2011 or 12 or something like that. I was at dinner. I was with a bunch of, it was at a show, um, a metal show uh, in, in LA. And it was like, you know, dinner afterwards. And it was like a bunch of booking agents, managers, people from bands, like this big table of people. And something came up about my email. Mm -hmm. And I offhandedly said, like, yeah, you know, it, it takes me a couple hours every week. Like, I don't, you know, I don't know how much longer I'm going to keep doing it. It's kind of a thankless thing because you don't get a lot of feedback that's like, this is so cool. Right. You get emails once in a while that are like, you got this wrong or you forgot my band or, you know. Right. So I was like, ah, I don't know if it's kind of worth doing. And everyone at the table collectively like erupts, like, no. You have to keep doing it. And they start telling me all these ways that they depend on it mm -hmm. and how they use it for different things and this and that. And so then I started getting some feedback from them about ways to make it better. And I started adding, adding things. Um, and it was around that time where I was like, I can't, I, I, I cannot time's money and I cannot keep doing this for free. Right. Um, and as the list grew, it's, you know, it's people from bands, it's managers, agents, merchandise company people it's all corners of the industry so that's when i started selling advertising in the email and that's where i got linked up to a uh you know an email service like all those platforms like uh uh mailchimp and uh constant contact and all that stuff started coming around so i did that and then i reached a point again about two years ago where uh the metrics are all changing because now there's obviously there's streaming there's social media i mean but there's so much more than just record sales mm -hmm. to to really pay attention to to have a robust picture of like where things stand you know right and so i was sitting here one weekend and i you know was debating i i, I got some advice from some friends but i was going back and forth about whether or not to switch to the the paid model and I found me on a Sunday night, sent out this email. And I just thought either everyone's going to revolt 
and say, I don't even want to be on this thing anyway. Why do I get these dumb emails? Or, you know, no way I'm paying for this. Or, um, you know, turning on the money switch will work. Uh, either way, I'll have my answer about whether or not it's worth continuing. Right. And uh, man, it was the most pleasant surprise in the universe. And it was like right before the holidays two years ago, Sunday night. It just like, I was so flattered, so just stoked by all the goodwill and all the people that were like, dude, you should have started charging for this like forever ago. Like this thing's worth something, you know, I'm happy, I'm happy to pay for it. Um, and, uh, yeah. And so it's been, that's been the deal the last two years. It's, uh, you know, again, it's not, uh, solely paying the bills. It is, it is generating, it is, um, you know, I am making money from it. It's, it's still a labor of love, but, um, yeah, it's nice. It's just, it was just rewarding after years and years and years of building that thing and to, and to, to find out that people care, not only care about it a lot, but cared about it enough to support it and, you know, allow me a little more time to actually do it, right. put it together. So, and since, you know, and it's, I mean, it's a dollar a week. It's not like it's a lot, but, uh, it is also enough that it gives me the momentum and the encouragement to uh, do more and more things with it. You know, right. it used to be, it used to be once a week. Now there's like three a week, like you said, um, you know, and I do deep dives on things and there's a lot more, you know, there's radio charts, there's uh, show attendance, streaming numbers, um, international charts, uh, you know, there's like a bunch more, to it um but yeah but that's the uh that's really the story behind it and it's it's been really cool and i'm really grateful that people are are still into it so and i and so now i do the thing which i guess is what you're supposed to do with these kind of things now in our current economy <laughs> uh i do a couple free ones mm-hmm. and then the and then most of them are the are the paid subscribers get and then i still but i still because i thought at first that like you just switch over and it's all paid mm-hmm. um but apparently you're supposed to still do it free once, once in a while. That's how you, that's how you get the new paying people in. <laughs> so oh, wow. cool. I've still been doing that too. How difficult is it to source out the information? Um, that's definitely the hardest part about it, but um, that's really the, the, I think the greatest benefit that it has is the vast majority, not all of it, but the majority of the info that's in there is publicly available mm-hmm. and accessible. The, what the newsletter does is it collects the type of metrics on the type of bands that a certain segment of the industry cares about. Mm-hmm. Whereas you would have to do what I do, which is go to 10 different places and get all that stuff and then filter out all the bands and artists that are cluttering it up mm-hmm. that people who read my newsletter don't care about. Right. Um, and then kind of assemble it and all of that. So th- that's, that's the part that's the most time consuming, but it's also the most rewarding because that ultimately makes it what it is, right. you know, and I've been, and I've been better in the last few weeks too, about, uh, including sources, um, <laughs> towards the bottom, you know, but where it, it could, sometimes people ask, where'd you get that from? Right. You know, Slipknot streamed more this week than Motley Crue. That can't be right. Well, I got that from Rolling Stone. Here's the link, <laughs> you know, so, um, but yeah, that, that's the most time consuming part is going and, and gathering all that stuff. But like you, I'm a nerd about that stuff. So yeah, I like, 
I like finding it. You also reach out. I saw that one of your sources was your mom. A few. Uh... <laughs> yeah. That was just to see if anyone was reading yeah. the list of sources. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because there are times where I, you know, comment about some <laughs> of the information and I'm asked, well, where's this coming from? And I'm like, well, the bottom of the newsletter says this. So, um, yeah. And it's, yeah. it's interesting, too, because was it this week or maybe it was last week where to give people a big picture of what's going on, you did have some uh, pop and some uh, hip hop artists in there to give people, you know, a realization of, of what's taking place. It's, it's interesting how there are so many people in the industry that guide a lot of people in the wrong direction for money. And again, I, I apologize to people where I, I keep bringing up the guys from armored saint, but it's because I am able to have in-depth interviews with them on the business side of things. And two of the things that they talked about was how they've always maintained realism with regards to the size of the band. And I brought up speaking to Joey Vera this week saying, you know, that's interesting because I always read interviews from Scott Ian, for example, saying how, what a big mistake it was back in the late eighties touring with a huge stage that really wasn't going to influence when people were coming in, you know, if people were coming to see shows or not, but it was a huge expenditure for the band. And we talked about, you know, how the band has always understood where, where they reside within, you know, the grand scheme of things so as to not overextend themselves. So, you know, you've got things like, for example, last year, Megadeth was supposed to open up for five finger death punch in Europe. And people were saying, you know, how can this happen? How can Megadeth open up? Right. Right. Well, the reality is that Five Finger Death Punch actually sells more than Megadeth does in 2020. Mm-hmm. So Megadeth has to open. That's not a knock on Megadeth because that's actually helping them out by selling T-shirts at those shows, by moving you know, a physical product, by getting more people to stream albums. A lot of people don't understand the whole economic situation of what bands um, deal with, you know? So for a lot of bands to get on a five finger death punch tour or another tour like that, or a disturbed tour, someone who's more, you know, uh, towards a uh, popular side of things. um, It's a make it or break it thing for a lot of bands. So to me, and, and, Actually, festival bills are very similar where a lot of people will argue. Yeah. Why is yeah, why is anthrax smaller than ghost? Well, because ghost is actually more popular right now than than anthrax. Or you've mentioned slipknot before, where people will say, Well, slipknot should be here. Well, the reality is they're outside of Metallica, there maybe is no other band in all of metal that sells more than yeah. Slipknot. So you know, to- yeah, and that's where I think this stuff is is important yes. for perspective. And then, yeah, and putting in the, some of those numbers from pop artists and hip hop artists, I used to put those in all the time, and I used to a little section I called Reality Check. Because, <laughs> yeah, I think it's important for all of us who are looking 
that hard rock metal and, and punk ish music, which is what the newsletter covers. You know, when I say Queen is the biggest streaming hard rock band last week, mm-hmm. and here's all the streams they did. I do think it's important to then tell people like, just so you know, here's what like Drake and Kanye and Taylor are streaming. Right. <laughs> like, like Queens number one in hard rock. They're like number 79 right. in all of music, you know, right. streaming wise. So yeah, I do think that little bit of context is important. Absolutely. For sure. Um, is there any trend that you report about that surprises you? Obviously for a lot of people seeing that like Queen and ACDC and Metallica, are consistently at the top of the the hard rock and metal spectrum. Uh, yeah, I, I'm sure that- I, it's it's almost cliche to talk about TikTok, and I'm not like an active TikTok person, but seeing the direct results that a viral TikTok thing has, yes, uh, bring me the horizon. A song of theirs from like two or three records ago, um, got big on tiktok through some tiktok thing and that has just shot their streaming numbers like back way up and and it's been consistently now for a few months and it's because of like this kind of random song from like three records ago on top of everything else that they have going on right um gym class heroes is another one like they're like defunct and uh they have a song that an old song that took off on tiktok and got all this traction and now they're like the dude's doing interviews again. They're talking about doing a reunion. Right. Like their streaming numbers are like, they're in the like top 200 Spotify songs every week now. And that surprises me in a, in a good way, but that um, people are actually discovering music that way, you know, whatever it takes, this Absolutely. Point, whatever it takes to get it in front of somebody. Yeah. But it's interesting that it's like older songs, not older, older, old, you know, but like a few records ago and, and that and that's actually kind of encouraging too, because traditionally, you know, album cycles have been getting shorter and shorter. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get people telling me all the time, why are you on TikTok? You know, it's that's such a dumb platform. I said, I gotta cast the net as large as I can. And if TikTok is gonna bring people in, then that's what I gotta do. Yeah. So yeah. Um, um okay. that is a good question from Arturo. I agree. Uh, do you find artists have been more willing to talk promote because of the lockdown? Absolutely. Not, not, not just that they're more willing to talk, but that uh, they're more willing to figure out these platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember inviting Randy Blythe onto the Metallica podcast a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And he said he'd love to do it, but he wants to wait until the next time we can be in person because podcasts are something you do in person. Mm-hmm. And that was his quote. And, you know, Last week he was on Josta's podcast and Rob Flynn's podcast, and but he's doing it all. And it's not a knock on him; it's right. just more indicative of how things have evolved quickly because of the pandemic. Where um, and uh, movie interviews in particular, you couldn't get most major stars. You weren't going to get unless it was in person. It was like out of the question. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've done virtual junkets in the last two years, uh, which is nice because I like being at my house. <laughs> so, yeah, that has been a, a one of the, the benefits of the way things have changed is I think it's gotten, uh, you know, I, I, I had Ace Frehley on uh, the disc dive show I do for NotFest, and it was the first Zoom Skype 
type interview that Ace had ever done. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he's done obviously a million of them since. Uh, so it's great, you know, getting guys like Ace into this because it, it does make them, yeah, more accessible to more more journalists, more podcasts and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, yeah, makes sense. There were a lot of people that were also pushed in that direction as well. Some out of necessity, uh, obviously through labels and stuff like that. But I think that a lot of bands were smart to not sit around and have wanted to up their social media presence. Yeah. And, and there have been a lot of bands that have put out, in my opinion, the best album of their career because they've had time to, to work on music and not only mm-hmm. just the compositions, but sonically sound much better than anything they've released. Why? Because they've had time to actually sit and, you know, not be like, all right, we got to bang this out and get back out on tour. No, we're sitting around for yeah. X amount of months. So, this time we're making sure that it's what we've always wanted. So that's a great point. I've never thought about that. Yeah. Um, I've had you on for well over two hours here. The original session <laughs> yeah. that we scheduled was an hour, but things just, uh, I figured we'd just go, but yeah, it's probably a good spot to wrap it up. Yeah. Um, just but wanna, it's been super fun. Yeah. I just wanted to ask you real quick, where should people go to, follow you uh on social media if there's any specific page you want to point them to um sure yeah uh ryanjdowney.com that that'll have all my socials and stuff linked to it the newsletter we were talking about all the podcasts um you can find all of it there a one a one-stop shop as it were uh do people tell you you look like bob odenkirk <laughs> no have you heard that have you heard that before i've never heard that before the only one that i've ever gotten the first the, 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 well, I've gotten two actually one time. I love Bob Odenkirk, by I, the way. That's I, a huge, I do huge as well. So I don't take that as, yeah. uh, yeah, yeah. as, uh, as something bad. Um, I, I, where did I work? I worked in a Pacific Sunwear, uh, years ago in the nineties. And somebody came up to me right as, um, um, uh, melancholy by smashing pumpkins came out. Uh, someone came up to me and said, you look just like Billy Corgan when he still had hair. Um, <laughs> I had that. I can see it. And then I was um, at a bar once, um, and the waitress says to me, wow, you look just like Johnny Depp. And I said, sweetheart, I appreciate that. I understand you're working for tips. I said, once <laughs> the lights come on in the next few minutes, you're going to be in for a rude awakening. So... <laughs> no, there's there's no way <laughs> that's amazing yeah i used to uh definitely more in the 90s i used to get val kilmer and david duchovny were the two that i would hear oh, wow. but uh you know that was a lifetime ago um but yeah i see some odenkirk if, you, if, if they if without the hair you could you could do it i'd call i'd call saul if you were my saul i'd call you there you go i appreciate that i Appreciate your time and I appreciate uh, all of the insight and all the storytelling that we've done tonight. Uh, it was awesome. Uh, glad that we were finally able to uh, hook this up. Yeah, me too. And shout out to Toomey once again, if he's still hanging out in here and shout out to everybody who's been hanging out in the chat and asking questions and stuff. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I love that's the most fun about doing this stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I love, I, I've got a good diehard uh, audience again, small, but they're here week after week and, and they're also, uh, you know, they're always good at throwing questions out there. So 
And there's, a, and there's a metal dentist. You'll be a dentist. <laughs> I was just thinking about Little Shop of Horrors yesterday. <laughs> there you go. Uh, <laughs> the metal dentist. Awesome, dude. Well, thanks so much for having me on, man. This was super, super fun. Absolutely, man. Uh, any other time you want to come back and share more stories, I'd be more than happy to have you back on. Yeah, and if you ever want to uh, come on and talk Metallica, you're more than welcome on Speaking Destroy anytime. I would be more than happy to do so. You just let me know and I'll be there. Awesome, man. Uh, well, cool. Well, thanks again, everybody. And uh, you guys have been great. I've been Ryan J. Downey. <laughs> awesome. That is uh, the, the Dave Mustaine impression for the night. And, and I'm so glad. I'm so glad you got that because I know it's a, it's a deep cut. <laughs> At the end of every I show, stole he's he's. You guys have been great, and we've been Megadeth. I I, I stole that at MTV. I, that was my sign off. The the, <laughs> the other thing that he always did, which obviously he stopped doing after the Big Four, was before doing uh, Mechanics. Was they play it like this, yeah yeah we play it like that. There's their way, yeah. and there's our way. There you go. <laughs> so, and I, by the way, my I, I split the difference. Musically, I prefer Mechanics. Lyrically, Four Horsemen. There you go. There you go. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. All right. Thank you Later, for so uh, for being here. Thank you, Ryan, for being here. And we will catch you next week on the next episode of Signals from Mars live stream. Uh, in the meantime, you'll be able to hear the replay, the podcast format next Friday. So on that note, we will see you next time right here on the Signals from Mars live stream. Sick. Thank you for listening to the Mars Attacks podcast. This concludes our show. 